Jeremiah chapter 1. So um, I, I did a, a message a month ago now uh, from Jeremiah chapter 1 and ended up not finishing it. And I said I would get back to do part 2. So that's what this is today. It's not the ideal way to do one month in between messages because if they're meant to be connected, you tend to lose continuity. So I will um, go over briefly what I covered in the first message, and then, uh, Lord willing, we'll finish this up today. Next week, of course, is home church, and so we'll be in the exhortation study. So two weeks from today, I intend and hope to get back to our Acts study in Acts chapter 4 we'll be beginning. So for today, we're going to read from Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, I had shared in that first study a month ago that this was a passage that has been very personally meaningful for me in the course of my walk with the Lord, but I have just recently been reading on a daily basis back through the book of Jeremiah, just one chapter a day. And when I started reading Jeremiah, of course, I was recaptured by verses 4 and 5, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to share the thoughts that I had for myself with you because they apply to you in the same way that they apply to me. And um, the thoughts that are represented here, especially in verse 5, of course, the thoughts that are represented here are super important for every believer to rightly understand in terms of their own life and their relationship with the Lord. Uh, this was the account of, from Jeremiah's own writing, this was the account of how the Lord first called him into ministry, how the Lord first established for Jeremiah uh, the, the perspective that his life from this point of hearing this word from the Lord forward was never going to be the same again. This word from the Lord was going to change his life, and not just temporarily, but it was going to change his life for the rest of his life. And we did spend some time, I'm not going to take you back through the passages in which we did this in the New Testament, but we did spend some time in that first message just establishing how this did, of course, apply to Jeremiah in a very personal and powerful way, but that it's meant to apply to our lives just the same as it did to Jeremiah, if not, amazingly, in an even greater way than it did to Jeremiah. In the same sense that the Lord Jesus described that even the least in those that would be part of the kingdom of God that he came to establish in a greater way than Jeremiah ever personally experienced um, would be serving an even greater purpose for the Lord in this world than even Jeremiah could have, no matter how great his calling uh, clearly was in the passage. Now, what we focused our attention on was that there are four key words that the Lord uses, and the four key words are in verse 5. They're the words formed, known, 
consecrated and appointed. And then we reverse the order of the first two in the same way that the Lord intended Jeremiah to reverse them so that what we end up with is known, formed, consecrated, and appointed. Now what these four words do is they highlight the Lord's activity, not Jeremiah's activity. The last one appointed, and we'll talk about this when we get to that point today, the last one appointed is implying things about Jeremiah's future activity. But the word itself, the four words that the Lord gave to Jeremiah were not about things that Jeremiah was going to be doing. They were about the four things that the Lord had already done in relationship to Jeremiah. And so what we saw was what really defines, because this word is a life-defining revelation from the Lord, that these four words define the Lord's purpose for Jeremiah, and by extension, of course, the Lord's purpose for us. And so uh, we spent some time developing, and we only got as far as the first two words. The first two words are known and formed, and I'll, I'll review those in just a moment. But what I want to say before we dig into the details and the specifics again is this. Um, there is in modern Christianity, and we're, we're in the midst of modern Christianity, we're modern Christians, there is in modern day Christianity um, a problem. And the problem is, uh, and it's really a function of our culture that surrounds us, the society that surrounds us, and how much, it's really a measurement of how much the surrounding culture has seeped in to the ministry of the church in a way that it should not have, never should. Modern Christianity tends to be way too me-focused rather than the Lord-focused, rather than heaven-focused, rather than throne-focused, rather than kingdom-focused. There's way too much emphasis in general Christianity out there uh, talking to people about themselves and, and, and focusing attention on them. But just because there's too much of that in modern Christianity, and, it, and it's, it's there to an unhealthy extent, unhealthy degree, it doesn't mean that the Lord never calls us to look at ourselves. And this is a case, and it's through the lens of how the Lord directed Jeremiah's attention, this is a case where the Lord wanted Jeremiah to look at himself, but not look at himself through a natural perspective that is so common in the world around us, and it's the only thing really the, Lord, the world can do is look at themselves through natural perspective. This is, look at yourself through the Lord's eyes. Look at yourself through the lens of, if, if the Lord is the one filming your life, and he's the one directing, he's, and, and producing, he's the one behind the camera, what does he see when he looks at you? And therefore, because his viewpoint is the highest, the most accurate, the most true, and the best viewpoint, this should be our viewpoint as we see ourselves. So he directs Jeremiah's perspective to land on these four key words. The first one was, of course, the word known. And the Lord says, before you were even conceived in the womb, I knew you. And I'm, I'm attaching to each one of these four, remember, 
uh, a key Hebrew word in the original text, and the Hebrew word here was yada, and it and it's a it's a special word for knowing something. You can know facts about the the world around you, facts even about yourself, but this isn't a knowledge of facts. This is a word that focuses attention on deep and personal and intimate relationship. And the idea here, and it's mysterious, we talked about it being mysterious, it it will always be mysterious until one day we're standing in the immediate presence of the Lord and then all things will become as clear to us as they are now to him. But the idea is the Lord had a deep and personal and intimate relationship with you before you were even conceived in your mother's womb, meaning before you even existed. Because the first moment chronologically of your existence, your actual existence, was the moment of your conception in your mother's womb. But the Lord says, I knew you before that moment. So how can he know one who does not even exist yet? And the idea is in the, in the heart and mind and plans and purposes of the Lord, he are, it, it's a sure thing that you would come into existence because he purposed for you to. He planned for you to. So the idea is who you are as you sit here this morning was something that was in the Lord's heart and mind before the foundation of the world. Before Genesis chapter 1 began, not just before the moment of your personal conception, but before even the beginning of all things that we identify as creation, and of course, history springing into action with creation, before all of that, you were known in a very personal and intimate way by the Lord. You weren't knowing him at that point, but he fully knew you. The second word is formed. So before you were formed in your mother's womb, he knew you, but then there came that moment in actual real world history where your mother conceived you. And as she conceived you, you began to develop physically in the womb. But the Lord says that he was involved in that. He wasn't just standing apart watching something biological happen in her womb, somewhat distant and somewhat just as as an interested observer. He was personally involved in your actual formation in the womb. And he uses the Hebrew word yatsar, which is, we we went back and looked at in Genesis chapter 2, the same word that the Lord uses when he came into the garden and took some of the, the, the soil of the ground and he formed it into the shape of a human body and did so exactly like a potter takes clay and forms it into a vessel for his purposes. That forming action of the potter is this same word, yatsar, which just emphasizes the Lord's personal hands-on activity in making you exactly the way you actually are. Now, this includes physical features. You look a very specific way. And yes, it's true that there are some people on the face of the earth that look somewhat similar to the way you look, 
No one looks exactly the way you look. And not just look a certain way because your physical features were formed a certain way. This word also implies that the Lord was actively involved in shaping who you are inside as well as outside. And I'm not just talking about your internal organs. I'm talking about the person that you are. Your personality was formed by the Lord. How many of us have an identical personality here? Like I'll use my wife as as a contrary example to me. Do you guys know Sandy and I? Do we have an identical personality? How different are we actually? We're as different as two people can possibly be. Which is all to God's glory, right? And he uses that in my life, and, and he uses that in her life, and he uses that in all of your lives. But that, that shaping even of personality distinctions, not just personality, but even likes, interests, abilities. I have certain capabilities that you don't have. And you have certain capabilities that I don't have. Is that just something self-originated? According to this passage in Jeremiah 1, verse 5, that's something that's divine. That's something that is the, the evidence of God's hand at work informing you a very specific way. And all of that for his specific and special purpose in your life. I'll read just for catching us up these two portions from the Psalm 139 that we spent some time in. I won't develop these again today, but let me just read these two passages again. The first one had to do specifically with being known. The second later in the, in the Psalm is having to do more with how we were formed. So Psalm 139, verse one through six. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. The implication of that is he knows what you're going to think even before you think it. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Not just where you go, but why you go the way that you go when you go wherever it is that you go. Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in, behind and before. This is not a bad thing. When the Lord hems you in as as his child, you know, he can hem in his enemies to restrain their evil activities. But when he hems his children in, it's it's like Caleb's exhortation to us about the parking lot and watching over over his children. When Caleb hems his children in, it's only ever for their good and for their benefit. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge, all this knowledge about how deeply and intimately and completely the Lord knows us, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Then skipping down to verse 10, uh, excuse me, verse 13, the focus shifts to being formed. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am a total mess. <laughs> now, I, I read the wrong translation there. 
I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully part is, I had nothing to do with this. I had nothing to do with turning out the way I actually turned out. Now, I'm not talking about once I was born and raised in the wrong ways and the effects of sin and all of those things, but just making me who I am and the way that I am, that was entirely the Lord's doing. It's a fearful thing, but it's also, and we're meant to come to grips with this. We're meant to get this. We're meant to embrace this and then ultimately rejoice in it. Every single person sitting here that belongs to the Lord was wonderfully made. Wonderfully made. You are, you're, you're, it can be misunderstood, but you're a masterpiece. The Lord made you a special and unique way in order to serve a specific purpose in this world. And it's important for you to buy into that. Not resulting in you feeling proud and arrogant about yourself, but feeling, uh, yeah, humbled, feeling deeply appreciative that the Lord did something unique when he made you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's just a, a... a, uh, an analogy or an imagery of being formed in the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. All right, so with all of that as our background, let's head back to Jeremiah and see if we can take just a few minutes to develop the last two of these four key words that finish this this self this life defining life transforming self perspective that's not just Jeremiah making stuff up to make himself feel better about himself but is following the Lord's revelation to him about who he actually is in his relationship with the Lord so again verse 5 the Lord speaking Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The next key word is consecrated. Before you were born, before you were born, I consecrated you. Now the word, Hebrew word, that's translated consecrated here is kadash. And it means to be dedicated to the Lord. Dedicated. Remember when Hannah dedicated her young child Samuel to a life of serving the Lord in the temple of the Lord. It's like that, being dedicated to the Lord. But here, the idea is who is doing the dedicating? Before you were born, I, the Lord is speaking to Jeremiah, dedicated you. Now, the hard part of this is Jeremiah had no choice. The Lord did not interview Jeremiah when he was still in his mother's womb and ask him, Jeremiah, I've got this special idea for your life. It's really awesome. This is what I intend to accomplish. But listen, it's up to you. You've got free will. 
you decide. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't agree with my plan for your life. Maybe you've got your own idea about how you want to live and what you want to do and what you want to accomplish. So far be it from me to trample on your own choices for your own life. Is that how the Lord communicated to Jeremiah? No. He simply declared to him and revealed to him, before you were born, I dedicated you. Now it's time then, now that Jeremiah is actually alive and mature and able to receive this and understand the concept of this and embrace it and then live according to it, it's simply Jeremiah's responsibility to buy into it. But the Lord's not even now giving him options. Did the Lord give Jonah options about his great purpose for Jonah's life? Did he say, Jonah, look, I want to send you to the city of Nineveh, and I know you hate the Ninevites in your guts. I know you despise them, and I know you don't want to go. But come on, man, let's go. What does he do? He just says, go. And does Jonah want to go? Jonah doesn't want to go. Jonah does everything he can to not go. He goes the opposite direction for a time, and then the Lord becomes persuasive. <laughs> right? And he has, he has Jonah go on a, a, a three-day retreat, an ocean retreat. Three days in the belly of the great fish, uh, being massaged by not essential oils, but digestive juices, <laughs> softening him up. And then when eventually the Lord appoints for the fish to, to vomit him out on the shore, the opposite direction of where Jonah was going, but the direction that was in agreement with the, where the Lord was taking him, uh, Jonah has had an attitude adjustment. And he's had a perspective adjustment. And now he knows clearly exactly why he's here in this world and what it is that he's meant to accomplish. That's all, all of that is contained in the single word dedicated or consecrated. So let me share with you four, let's see, I think I've got um, one two, three, four key passages on this concept. Uh, the first one is First Peter chapter 2. They're all four of these are going to say the exact same thing, just slightly different. But they're all linked, they're all connected, and the two that I'm going to read from the New Testament are based upon the two that I'm going to read from the Old Testament. First Peter chapter 2, Peter is, if we read this in context, I won't have time to do that. I'm going to start reading just verse 9, but what Peter's talking about from chapter 2 verse 1 is he's talking about the Lord's purpose in his saved people. And now reading in verse 9, the Lord through Peter says to his people, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. What he's doing is he's, he's redefining their self-understanding. 
You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people, and this is the phrase that I want to focus our attention on, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is how the Lord describes his people to his people. And this is a description of you and me. We are a people for his own possession. Now, if Bob were still here with us, I would have him read this text from the King James Version because it's, uh, it's, a, it's a famous verse and it's a, a phrase that is uh, known because of the unique translation of the King James. But it essentially says in the phrase, a people for his own possession. In that text, it says, you are a peculiar people. How many of you have ever heard that phrase before describing the church or describing Christians? You are a peculiar people. All right, so um, it, it's, it's true and it's accurate, but not in the way that we use peculiar anymore in our language. Peculiar originally meant something that was special or something that was unique. Uh, but as we've come to refer to peculiar things in our society today, it's not a common word, but when it is used, it's used to describe what? People that are strange. If you, that person's kind of peculiar. You, you don't mean, oh, they're special in a good way. You mean they're special in a weird way. Uh, awkwardly strange kind of way. Um, and of course, there may be a few of those among us also. But the idea here is that the word doesn't mean peculiar in an awkwardly strange or weird way. It literally, and this is, the ESV has done a, a, an excellent job of capturing the sense of the original text here. It, it literally means you are a people that are, that are meant to be possessed exclusively by the Lord. That's what makes us peculiar, different from the world, is the world lives for themselves. They live possessed only by themselves and therefore making all the decisions they make in life based upon their own personal preferences. We are different than that. We're peculiar from that. We're unique from that way of living because we recognize we don't belong to ourselves. We belong exclusively to the one who saved us. Now let's look, I said I've got three other passages. Let's look at where this phrasing originally came from. All the way, this is the first time it occurs in the Bible, all the way back in the book of Exodus, chapter 19. And those who are really familiar with Exodus 19 will understand this already, but I'll briefly describe. This is a key chapter in the, in the account of, of uh, the Lord rescuing the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he's now bringing them in the early days of their exodus from Egypt. He's brought them into the wilderness of Sinai. They're now reaching the foot of Mount Sinai where there's going to be the revelation of the law and the, the blueprint for the building of the tabernacle once the Lord calls Moses up onto the summit of Mount Sinai where he will meet with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. But this is immediately just before that happens. And they are a, they are a slave people. They've only ever known slavery. 
And because that's been their life experience and life history, their perspectives have been shaped by their experiences. And so the Lord brings them to the foot of this mountain. And before he brings Moses up into the mountain to receive all that he's going to give him, he first reveals to Moses something for the benefit of the people. And that's what we're going to read, the Lord uh, speaking to Moses about his great purpose for his people. Let's start reading in verse two. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness and there Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you, this is now his stated heart purpose for why he's done everything he's done to bring them out of Egypt. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. What does that phrase, all the earth is mine, mean? It means the Lord is saying, the whole world belongs to me. I'm Lord over it. I created it. It's under my control, therefore. It all belongs to me. But I don't value all of it the same way that I value my people. I value my people, and not, this is not meaning all the people in the world, but I value my people above even the rest of the world that belongs to me. And you, as my people, my saved and redeemed people, my covenant people, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples of the world. Meaning, he's going to take some of all, not all, he's going to take some of all, and he, he describes and defines them as his treasured possession. So the possession part is the theme that Peter picks up on and develops in the passage we just read, a people for his own possession. But in Exodus, the Lord adds this second word treasured just to make sure that they understand that while they functioned as lowly slaves in relationship to Pharaoh, now they're in a new relationship to a new overlord, a new master, a new king. And he views them not as lowly slaves, but as his treasured possession. Yes, they belong exclusively and entirely to him, like they formerly belonged exclusively and entirely to Pharaoh. But now there's this new element in the new relationship of treasuring. But that treasuring doesn't diminish the fact that they belong to him, not to themselves. Now let's look at another passage. This one is in parallel to the one we just read. This is in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And you might remember that the books of Exodus and Deuteronomy play a parallel and related purpose in the story of the Exodus. And that the book of Exodus is the beginning of the Exodus journey. And Deuteronomy comes 
and is revealed by the Lord at the end of that journey. 40 years separates the two books, um, but the same purpose remains constant through the whole experience and on into the future. We'll read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. So this is now, they're camped on the far side of the River Jordan, the River Jordan functioning from where they started as a boundary between them and the promised land. And before the Lord allows them to cross the River Jordan and enter the promised land, he wants to now reestablish the same new perspective that he began to establish in their hearts in Exodus 19, but in the intervening years, they've forgotten this, or it's never really taken root in their hearts in the way that it should have. So Deuteronomy 7, 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Now this word holy here does not mean that they are they are acting better than all of the other people in the face of the earth. They should be. But what's the big problem in the Exodus? We've read the story. We know the, we know the unfolding of the events. The problem was they didn't act better than the people of the world around them. But holy means to be separated from. And in that separation, there is a distinctive purpose that's established by it. So the idea is they haven't been acting like they should because their perspective hasn't really gained the benefit of what the Lord intended them to gain. And the perspective of your heart is what shapes your behavior. It's what shapes your choices. It's what shapes the words that come out of your mouth. And so the Lord is once again doing the deeper heart work of changing their perspective first. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who were on on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. The idea here is that they are set apart from all other peoples on the face of the earth to be the Lord's treasured possession. And he's anticipating the question that they would ask. Why, Lord? His answer is simple. I did it because I loved you. He doesn't explain why he chose to set his love on them He just declares it as the reason for what he has done. The Lord, before you were even conceived in your mother's womb, and before you were formed in your mother's womb, the Lord chose to love you, set his love on you. And if you get that, understand that, embrace that, it should change your life and redefine your life. Now, the last passage is another New Testament passage. It's in the book of Titus, chapter 2. And I'm going to focus on verse 
14, but I have to read from verse 11. This is one of those cases where the Apostle Paul tells in just like three or four verses the whole eternal story of God's plan for redemption and salvation. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared. He's talking here about the incarnation of Christ. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. The idea of verse 14 is you can say it this way and you're not speaking unbiblically. The entire reason that the Lord died on the cross, yes, he bore your sins on the cross. Yes, that was essential in order to repair and restore a hopelessly broken relationship on your side between you and God, the Father. Yes, he did that work, but why did he do it? He did it in order to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He had always wanted from before the beginning of history itself a special people dedicated entirely to him. A people that he could call his own. A people that were different from everyone else around them because they knew and understood that they have been known by him. They have been formed by him. They have been consecrated by him. And then that leads us to our last of our four key words. They're also appointed by him. So in Jeremiah 1.5, I won't go back and read it again. We're familiar with it by now. The fourth word that Jeremiah uses is, I appointed you. Now the specifics of the appointment in Jeremiah's life is going to be different than the specifics in my life and in your life. For Jeremiah, the Lord adds the detail, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. The word appointed, interestingly, is a somewhat familiar Hebrew name but it's a name that conveys this specific action of what the Lord did with Jeremiah. It's the name Nathan. And the word Nathan, the name Nathan literally means appointed to a special responsibility or assigned to a special task. A responsibility and a task that is not given to everyone, but is captured by that one person that is appointed in that way. The Lord knew Jeremiah. The Lord formed Jeremiah to be the exact way that he was, different than all others that came before him or have lived since him. And the Lord set him apart in this wholly owned by the Lord exclusively kind of relationship. But all of that was for this purpose of an appointment given to him. Now, if you've been part of this church for any length of time, you've heard me periodically revisit the concept of those who belong to the Lord have been given special, what I, I've coined my own phrase, 
special life assignments. That's the concept of being appointed. What the Lord is essentially revealing to Jeremiah is, I'm, I'm boiling it down, I'm using my own words. He's saying to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, you are special, but I have a special purpose for you. The idea of being special is not just so that you could just sit and contemplate your own specialness for the rest of your life. You're special because I intend to accomplish something special in you, with you, and through you for the Lord's, ultimately the Lord's glory and the fulfillment of the Lord's great purpose in the earth. So there are two passages I want to tie to this, and this will end our study today. The first one uh, we have focused a lot of attention on before, but let's go back to Ephesians 2, verse 10. And again, in this section, I won't read the first nine verses of chapter two, but Paul, again, tells the whole story of the gospel from verse one of chapter two, leading up through to verse nine, where now the, the hopelessly lost person is wondrously saved and redeemed and justified. And that leads us to verse 10, which is, why did the Lord go to such extremes to accomplish salvation in our hearts and in our lives. Verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Now, when I, this is years and years ago, when I taught through Ephesians and came to the word workmanship, I emphasized that it could have been translated by the word masterpiece. Because the idea here is it's, picture, it's a word picture. It's picturing God as a craftsman, like a painter or like a sculptor. And you know how it is. There are some people try their hand at painting, and they're not very good at it. And nowadays, if you're not very good at it, you sell your paintings for millions of dollars. But there are real, in the history of art, there are real, what we call them, masters of art. Every painting, you know, every Rembrandt, is a true masterpiece of painting. The, the question we're meant to ask is, if, if Rembrandt was a master painter, how much more if the Lord himself was painting the picture? There are master sculptors. How much more if the Lord was the one who was doing the sculpting? Would we consider the sculptor a master sculptor? And therefore, whatever they're working on, whatever he's working on, is certainly going to be a masterpiece. The, the idea here that Paul wants the church to get is the Lord has, has done a work to make you the way you are. Buy into it. Don't apologize for it. Don't feel bad about it. Don't, uh, don't associate any pride to it because you had nothing to do with making you the way you are. Yes, of course, in your development as a person in this world, you made certain decisions and you contributed to how you turned out by, by those decisions and by those actions that followed those decisions. But even that, the Lord was at work because don't think that he was only at work when you were in the womb and then he stopped the moment you were born. I've shared before about how the Lord was active in my early life way before I was ever saved. Like for me, creating a, a love of reading You've heard this uh, story. I'm not going to retell the story of me going to the library and all of that. The, the point being, why did the Lord make me a love of, uh, ha- making me a love of reading so that I 
read many, 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 many more books than the average person reads. It's because of what he knew I would be doing now. That's it. Not just because he wanted me to enjoy books. I mean, I'm glad I do. I'm, I'm really glad I do enjoy reading books. Because what a, what a dreary thing it would be to do what I do now if my appointment was read a lot of books, understand them, comprehend them, regurgitate them for the benefit of God's people if I hated reading. Can you imagine? I've actually met a pastor, a Bible teacher or two that does not like reading. They shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Right? But the point is, the Lord actively involved in making you who you are. You are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for an appointed set of accomplishments which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Meaning before you ever hit the ground running in this world, God had already planned out what you would accomplish and how it would fit in as a puzzle piece in the great jigsaw puzzle of his kingdom purpose in this world. Now let's go back to Titus 2 as our last passage and reread the, the verse and emphasize a portion that I left out a moment ago. Titus 2. I'm going to read again from verse 11, the whole brief story. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, belonging exclusively to him, who are, how are, how, how are this, this people for his own possession defined? What sets them apart in terms of just the observer looking at them? They are a people who are zealous for good works. And the idea here is not just any random good work that pops into their head, but God has appointed you to accomplish certain things that no one else will accomplish in kingdom service in the whole history of the world. No one else. It's your appointment. And he made you for it. And you'll stand before the throne and give an account for it. And the one thing you want to ensure is on that day you'll be able to say, you know, because I, I, believe me, I, I, I do a lot in my service to the Lord, but I know I'm not going to stand before the Lord and, and be able to say, I batted 1,000%, Lord. You know, I, I accomplished everything you intended me to accomplish, but I do want to stand there and hear from him that I accomplished most of it, that I didn't miss all of it, that I didn't just spin my spiritual wheels just attending church, you know, being part of the crowd and part of the group and, you know, I, I read my Bible on a daily basis and I sang the songs and I, you know, I honored the Lord, but I didn't really accomplish anything in my service to the Lord. We are a people defined by being zealous for good works because we've been appointed to accomplish 
those very things. All right, let's sing one last song. Uh, Tim, which song did you have?